welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we were going to air an interview due to some technical reasons that's going to be postponed to another time. Right now, today, or instead, we're going to be talking about a very interesting book. And that book is called The Bodies of God in the World of Ancient Israel by Benjamin D. Summer. Now, this book I was alerted to on one of the pages of Michael Heiser. Apparently, Michael Heiser has used this book. He's used this work. And he uses this evidence, this data, to support his ideas, his understandings of the Trinity as found in the Old Testament. To clarify, Benjamin D. Summer is not writing about the Trinity. He's not uh, talking about defending the Trinity as found in the Old Testament. But a lot of his data can be used to support that if you want to use his data to support a more orthodox view of what we find in the Old Testament. The book, of course, is The Bodies of God and the World of Ancient Israel. The Bodies of God. Scandalous, right? Unless you're a Christian and you believe in the Trinity and that Jesus has a body and then Jesus is God, then it's not so scandalous unless you're a Calvinist and you just don't like talk of bodies. And if anyone says anything about God having a body, they're an instant heretic, even though you believe in the Trinity and Christ incarnate, but your views aren't consistent. Summer opens with this. He says, the God of the Hebrew Bible has a body. This must be stated at the outset because so many people, including many scholars, assume otherwise. The evidence for this simple thesis is overwhelming, so much so that asserting the carnal nature of the biblical God should not occasion surprise. What I propose to show in this book is the startling or bizarre idea in the Hebrew Bible is something else entirely, not that God has a body, that is the standard notion of ancient Israelite theology, but rather that God has many bodies located in sundry places in the world that God has created. So Summer is trying to defend this tantalizing position, this position that is kind of familiar to Christian ideas of Trinity, that God can be the same person, yet be located in multiple bodies and multiple shapes and multiple forms, diversely scattered throughout the world. One of his first defenses of this is, one needs not go very far in the Bible to find a reference to God's form or shape. Both terms, in fact, appear in the 26th verse of the Bible, in which God addresses various unnamed heavenly creatures as follows. Let us make humanity in our form, according to our shapes, so that they rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and the beasts over all the earth, and all the creeping things that creep on the earth. This verse begins from the assumption that God and the unnamed heavenly creatures have bodies, and it tells us that human bodies will have the same basic shape as theirs. This, I find, is a very interesting paragraph just for my own studies. From my own studies, when I looked up the word for image, as used in Genesis 1, we see very similar usage of the words when we're referencing idols, shapes, forms, bodies. But people like Michael Heiser and N.T. Wright will take this image text in Genesis 1 and say, God is creating man in some sort of uh, power image, that man, he has discretion. Just like God has discretion, man has discretion. But the word itself would seem to indicate that it's a form, that man is the form of God. Summer is saying, in this verse, in Genesis 1, that is what is being referred to. People are made in the image of God, they're made in the form of God, share his physical likeness. And what do you hear as a counter-argument usually to something like this? They'll say, but God is spirit. Well, in Genesis 1-2, the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the water. So, spirits can have form, and spirits can be spatially located, 
And the disciples, when they first see Jesus walk through a wall, they think he is a spirit. They think he's a ghost. And so the verse might not actually mean what people try to make it mean. They're not thinking about additional options that are probably more probable. They think God is spirit, therefore God has no location whatsoever. He doesn't deal with time, space, dimensions, and he's like this transcendent force, which is very awkward when we're reading the Bible and God sits in heaven or he inhabits the temple or he goes and he talks to Abraham or walks in the garden and then talks to he talks to Moses face to face. He has dinner with the elders. We got a lot of these weird texts in which God is doing things, walking, eating, talking to people face to face. One of the most interesting passages I find in the Bible is in Exodus 24, 9 and 10. It reads this. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Ahibu, and 70 elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, a body of heaven in its clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. There's a very ancient idea that if you see God, then you die. No one has seen God and lived, right? We remember that verse. That verse actually is found in Exodus 33:20. It's in the same context as the verse that we already read, in which people already have seen God and dined with him. And the people there are saved. The text says that they're saved. They're safe. And if you haven't noticed the wording, it says specifically that they are safe. It says, And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. So Israel sees God and lives. Summer writes, What is surprising is how many people discovered that there is an exception to this rule. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw my Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. His clothing filled the palace. Isaiah tells us in 6.1, The prophet is not surprised to discover that God has a body or clothing. Rather, Isaiah is dismayed at having seen it, because he is sure he is about to die. I said, Woe is me, for I am doomed. For I am a man with impure lips, dwelling among the nation with impure lips, and my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Summer writes, In his case, however, a heavenly being purified him with a burning coal, which somehow allows him to see God without the normal danger, and Isaiah became one of several exceptions to the general rule described in the Bible. Summer then contrasts this with a text in which Yahweh is seen, God is seen by people, and the text makes no big deal of it. And we've already covered a couple of these in our podcast. We're talking about in Genesis, walking among the garden, Yahweh approaching Moses. Amos 9, I saw God standing at the altar. Sometimes in the Bible, people see Yahweh, God. There doesn't seem to be fear, and it's just a normal occurrence. Contrast these texts to texts in which God is surrounded by Shekinah glory. He's too bright to see. People are in mortal danger by seeing God. And Summer writes, What is crucial to note that for our purpose that none of the texts edited into this chapter make the claim that God does not have a body. The debate in which they engage concerns itself exclusively with the effects that body has on humans nearby. Here's a paragraph of Summers, which I think is very interesting and very relevant for the open theism debate. The argument from silence is the argument from silence within the Bible 
actually a good argument because people say that's an argument from silence. You're just saying just because someone doesn't explain something, that thing is not true. But Summer writes this. This may seem to be an argument from silence, but silence from a large sample of literature is indeed significant. The Hebrew Bible contains a wide variety of texts from multiple genres produced over centuries. If its authors intended us to realize that they used anthropomorphic language figuratively at some point, surely some of them would have said so or would have given us reason to sense that their language was figurative. This argument is actually a really good argument about like God repenting. So if the repenting is figurative and God never changes and never alters and he's this perfect immutability, at some point in the text, at some point in this Bible, this large body of literature, you'd expect someone to say so, right? Some indication, a little bit of indication, somewhere. But when people are defending this notion of immutability, what do they do? They point to vague proof texts in the middle of books that aren't very early and are fairly discreet. And contextually, there's alternative understandings of those vague proof texts. The Bible nowhere, nowhere, nowhere describes an immutable God living outside of time, pure actuality, stuff like that. It's just, and to just assume that onto the Bible, that is unwarranted. Furthermore, to believe that it's a fact that the authors of the Bible believed these things, even though nowhere in this large body of text they describe this, that's just nigh irrational. Summer is right, and he criticizes a bunch of scholars who just kind of ignore the bodily descriptions of God as found throughout the Hebrew Bible. Summer even criticizes Walter Brueggemann, a scholar I really like, and he says Brueggemann just ignores the issue. In his very seminal magnum opus volume, Walter Brueggemann just ignores the issue. But so far, we haven't touched on the main premise of this book. We just have been basically talking about his his case that Yahweh in the Old Testament has a body. His chapter one is one of the most interesting chapters that I've found. I'm very interested in uh, ancient Near East texts like other religions. And this chapter is on divine fluidity. God having various forms, various bodies, and what did the cultures at the time of Israel, what did they believe about the properties of their gods? And he writes this, For the Greeks, a god, like a human being, has a discrete body and a discrete self. For ancient Near East religions, God could have multiple bodies and fluid selves. Greek religion assumed a basic resemblance between mortals and immortals in this respect, whereas ancient Near East religions posited a radical contrast between them. So we get that. The idea of Zeus in the Greek religion is that Zeus is a discrete person, a discrete body, and just exists within himself, just kind of like a human being does. Like, I'm Chris, I sit in my house, I'm in my house, I'm not elsewhere. But in ancient Semitic religions, this is not the case. Their gods did not function in the way of having a discrete body, and that's their body, and that's that. There was divine fluidity. Summer goes on to write, This view of ancient Near Eastern deities is valid so far as it goes, but it obscures something essential. For the peoples of the ancient Near East, the gods were made of a different sort of stuff, not only physically, but also ontologically. A careful examination of how ancient religious texts imagined self and body then will prompt us to classify theological perceptions in a new way. This new classification has a greater explanatory value than some more familiar polarities. For example, monotheism versus polytheism. 
and eminence versus transcendence. Further, this classification will invite us to examine monotheistic texts to see whether they, too, give evidence of both perceptions of divinity. Some are saying there's not distinct categories. It's not monotheism versus polytheism. It's not eminence versus transcendence. There's other categories which could be the case, and which he argues is the case within ancient Israel and also their surrounding cultures. Summer then starts looking at Mesopotamian religions, and he refers to a type of divine fluidity, and he calls it fragmentation. He says, some divinities have a fluid self in the sense that there are several divinities within a single name who somehow are and are not the same deity. The goddess Ishtar provides the clearest example of this phenomenon. Mesopotamian treaties list divinities as witnesses who are called on to punish vassals when they violate the treaty. In several such treaties, Ishtar is mentioned more than once, usually in two or three geological manifestations. Thus, the 7th century treaty between the Assyrian Empire, Ishhardan, and the king of Ur-Azekbanu, Ramatea lists as witnesses one goddess called Ishtar of Arbel and another called Ishtar of Nineveh, as well as the planet Venus, who is generally equated with Ishtar. Later in the same text, various gods are called on to curse Ramatea in the event that he defies Ishhardan. These deities include Venus, Ishtar, Lady of Battle, Ishtar, who resides in Arbella, Ishtar of, and then there's a blank, it's usually like missing text, and Ishtar of Kar Kames, each of whom must assail Ramtalia in particular ways. The same phenomenon is evident in the 8th century treaty between the Assyrian Empire, Ashtonarari V, and Mateliu, king of Arpat. I might be just slaughtering these names, maybe. In which the list of witnesses include the following. Be adjured of Asher, king of heaven and earth. Be adjured of Adad and Shalah. Be adjured of Ishtar, lady of Nineveh. Be adjured of Ishtar, Lady of Arbella, be adjured of Adad of Kerba El, and be adjured of Adab of Alp. He covers more evidence too, but you see what's going on here is that there's a bunch of different gods with the same names who identify with the same goddesses. And he talks about why this is not like just a royal name like king or priestess or goddess. It's Ishtar is the god. And he, he says later. He says later there's there's uh, evidence that when these two Ishtars, they come together, they formed Asur Benepel, and as one they exalted him. So we see the same goddess being treated as different yet the same. They're different beings with different functions, different personalities, but they function as one and they're the same goddess at the same time. Summer writes, Somehow it was possible for various local and even heavenly manifestations of a single god to be effectively identical with each other and also distinct from each other. This phenomenon indicates for the first sort of fluidity of divine selfhood I treat here. The deities I have discussed have a self distinct from other deities. Ishtar is not the same goddess as, say, Zarpanetu or and Adad is not Nergal. Yet, in the cases we have examined, that self seems to be fragmented. Ishtar of Arbella acts independently of Ishtar of Nineveh, and both of them act independently of Venus, yet their independent actions are completely parallel to each other. We might borrow a phrase from Indian culture to describe these local Ishtars as something like avatars of Ishtar. 
I think that's an interesting choice of words, that these Ishtars act as avatars of Ishtar. And I've used that word before, avatar, in reference to possibly what's happening in Genesis with the God and Moses when God approaches Moses in Genesis 18. Summer then goes on to describe another type of divine fluidity. And this type, he says, involves the overlap of identity between gods who are usually discrete selves. Several Akkadian texts describe one god as an aspect of another god, and others refer to two gods as a single god, even though the same text also refers to each of these gods individually. A late second millennium hymn to the god Nerata describes other gods and goddesses as part of Nerata's body. O Lord, your face is Shemesh, your locks Nishba, your eyes, O Lord, are Enlil and Ninlin. Your eyeballs are Gula and Betila. Your eyes, lids, O Lord, are the twins Sin and Shamash. Your head is a dad who makes the heaven and earth like a smithy. Your brow is Shala, beloved spouse who contends, Ada's heart. Your neck is Marduk, judge of heaven and netherworld. Your throat is Sar- Sarpanitim, creatress of the people. The text moves down to other parts of Nero's body, identifying them as components with various gods. A similar phenomenon appears in the late second millennium hymn to the god Marduk. So we see this phenomenon where multiple gods are ascribed as aspects of one god, yet it's, it's not a monotheism. And he writes this, The scribes who copied these texts, and apparently the priests who recited them, were perfectly comfortable describing Marduk as Nerata's throat one day and acknowledging Marduk as king of the gods the next. If this is monotheism, it is of an exceedingly fleeting sort. Nergal's self might incorporate Marduk's in the worshiper's mind, but this did not mean that Marduk lost his own self in the process. Later on, a guy named Porter is quoted who's talking about a list of offerings that they found in ancient texts in which the various gods overlap. And he writes this, this is Porter, The juxtaposed names imply no absorption of the second god by the first. In almost every case, both gods named in the juxtaposition appear elsewhere in the text as independent deities, each invoked and presented with offerings as two gods with independent existences with separate powers. What does seem to be implied by the linking of the two gods' names, however, is that some degree of equivalence between the two gods in terms of shared function or quality. The juxtaposition of divine names in the K252 text is significant because it seems to imply the similarity or even partial equivalence of certain gods, either functionally or in some essential quality. So this divine fluidity in in Semite thought is that there could be multiple gods, but somehow they're kind of the same or overlapping god. Again, this is not the Greek idea of discrete entities. Zeus is Zeus and not Hera and not Kronos and is his own person. This is a very fluid idea that's in contrast to the Greek thoughts, the Greek ideas, in which beings overlap in existence. He also talks about idol worship, in which there's divine beings and they could inhabit an idol or stone through some sort of ceremonial act. In those religions, it's not that the idol is God, but God, a fragmented part of God, in some sense, divine fluidity, inhabits that idol or that stone due to some ritual and could leave that idol and come back. He could inhabit it. He talks about the Canaanites. He says, as with Ishtar of Mesopotamia, there seems to be many gods named Baal in Canaan who share an identity 
even though that they are at times referred to as separate beings. The term Bel in Northwest Semitic text by itself usually referred to the god known as Hadad or Hadu, but the term also used among with various place names. We hear of Bel of Mount Saphon, Bel Shemayan or Bel Shaman, Bel of Pur, Bel of Urgit, Bel of Lebanon, Bel of Sidon, and by and large these figures seem to be local epitaphs of Hadid. These local manifestations were largely identified with each other and with the hero from the Urgalic Bel epic, which designates its main character as Hadu or Bel throughout, without adding any genitive after Baal. This is an important concept. Remember those Ishtar texts in which there's different Ishtars for different regions, even though they function as the same god. Bel also kind of functions in the same manner in which there's different bells, but then there's an overriding bell. There's bell proper, and then there's bell non-propers. There's specific bells elsewhere, but same gods. There's a lot more stuff that I'm skipping over. This is a large book, and you could probably read it if you're interested in this sort of stuff, but he also goes on to talk about ancient Israel, and this is also incredibly interesting the things that he points out in the text that modern readers just might just skip over. And he writes this, In the previous chapter, we examined a particular understanding of divine selfhood according to which a deity can produce small-scale manifestations that enjoy some degree of independence without becoming separate deities. This view can be found not only in Mesopotamian and Canaanite religions, but also in ancient Israelite texts, some from the Bible itself and some recovered recently by archaeologists. So they found a few earthenware pots, and some mention Yahweh of Samaria, another mentions Yahweh of Taman, and he writes this, The phrasing found in the Pithrae and the bench inscription recalls the references to Ishtars of Arbella and Nineveh, and to the bells of Saffron, Urgarit, and Lebanon that were discussed in chapter 1. These archaeological finds suggest that there's a lot of ancient Israelites who believed in this divine fluidity in which there's different Yahwehs for different regions. And we find some of the same very interesting phrasing within the Bible. And he says, these include Yahweh at Hebron, 2 Samuel 15, 7, and Yahweh at Zion in Psalm 99, 2. He adds a disclaimer, and I would have added it if he didn't. He says, one cannot be sure that these terms refer to Yahweh's who are in some way independent of each other, but these texts at least allow one to raise such a possibility. He's saying the text in the Bible is not definitive. He's not saying, oh, this is proof positive. But that's one thing we need to consider when we're reading the text is, is are they referring to this divine fluidity when they're talking about Yahweh's in different locations? Talking about 2 Samuel, he says, The verse concerns King David's son, Absalom, from whom David is estranged and whose political ambitions David suspects. In an attempt to convince David to allow him to go to Jerusalem briefly, Absalom says to David, Please, I should like to go fulfill the vow I made to Yahweh in Hebron. For when I dwelt in Geshur and Aram, your servant made a vow, saying, If Yahweh indeed allows me to return to Jerusalem, I then shall worship Yahweh. Note that the phrase, the vow I made to Yahweh in Hebron, does not mean that Absalom was in Hebron when he made the vow, as Absalom states at the time he was hundreds of miles north of there, in the Armenian principality Geshur, located in Bashan, or was now known as the Golan Heights, directly east of the Sea of Galilee. The phrase in question means that, while in Geshur, Absalom made a vow to worship Yahweh in Hebron. This raises the question, why did Absalom need to worship Yahweh in Hebron, when after all, Yahweh's ark was in Jerusalem and the sacrifices were made to Yahweh there? The answer, 
Donner shows is clear. In Hebron is not an adverbial phrase modifying worship. Indeed, the verb does not appear until the following sentence, nor is it an adverbial phrase modifying I made, because Absalom was in Gesher when he made the vow. Rather, in Hebron is part of the deity's name. The prince claims that he made a vow not simply to Yahweh, nor to Yahweh of Jerusalem, but to Yahweh of Hebron, and thus he had to leave Jerusalem to fulfill it. For in Jerusalem, one can pray to Yahweh generally, or to Yahweh of Jerusalem, but not to Yahweh of Hebron. So that's kind of a mind-blowing claim when you, you review what Summer has wrote. He's saying that the text in the Bible in Second Samuel is acknowledging that there's these different Yahwehs and that you worship the individual city Yahweh in that actual city. Like the Baal references that we already talked about, either one could worship Baal or worship Baal as associated with a city. Either one worships Yahweh proper or one worships Yahweh of Hebron, for example. He goes on to talk about the use of angels throughout the Bible in which an angel's doing something, but also Yahweh's doing that thing. And he says this Malka is something very similar to an avatar in Indian religions. One wonders why, whether... Avatar might not be a better translation of the term when used this, re- this way rather than angel. The Malachi, in these cases, is not a being separate from Yahweh, whom Yahweh sent on a mission. Rather, it is part of the deity that can act on its own. Alternatively, it is possible that Yahweh temporarily overlaps with some heavenly beings who do God's bidding, which suggests a different model from that of an avatar. The conception also occurs when several passages in which Yahweh becomes ambiguously manifest to humans, even without use of the technical term mola. I think we've talked about this uh, before on this program, in which sometimes an angel's doing something, but then it's also saying that Yahweh does it. An angel's speaking, but Yahweh's speaking. What is this? It's, it's like a divine avatar. People say it's a Christophany. It's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Sure, sure, it's it's a divine appearance in a bodily form of Yahweh who acts independently of Yahweh and sometimes even talks with Yahweh. It's a being that is and isn't Yahweh at the same time. Just like Yahweh dines with the elders, but then later on, there's this weird conversation in which Moses talks to God and God says, no one can see my face and lives. And then there's this uh, odd scene in which God places his hand over Moses, passes by, and Moses sees his back. Wait, didn't they just dine together? They, they just had lunch together, and now this weird scene's happening where God is saying, no one can see my face and live? Something weird's going on here. And again, the orthodox way to take these texts is the notion of the Trinity, which interestingly enough lines up to a lot of these ideas of divine fluidity that there could be physical beings who are and aren't Yahweh at the same time, that God could have multiple manifestations of himself at different times in different places. Divine fluidity. He covers Yahweh speaking to Abraham, Yahweh wrestling with Jacob, which is also referred to as an angel in a different text. It's, it's an angel, but it's Yahweh. Angel, but Yahweh. Jacob's name becomes one who wrestles with God. It becomes Israel. And listen to this. This is interesting. This is about the manifestation of God in Exodus 3, where he appears to Moses. And Summer writes this, the letter bet in the words, and then he quotes the Hebrew. I can't read the Hebrew. Maybe my dad should come and read it to me. In Exodus 2 is the bet essentia. These words should be thus translated, Yahweh's small scale manifestation appeared to him as, or in the form of, a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And so, Yahweh has a small-scale manifestation in Exodus 3. 
And of course, Summer covers the weird things that happen in Judges 6 with Gideon under the tree in which there's multiple Yahwehs, one in heaven and one as an angel talking to him at the same time, both identified with Yahweh. He concludes with something that should be obvious to Christians when reading the Bible. He says this, Thus, a biblical text can speak in a single breath of God being present both on earth and in heaven. Psalm 20 asks God to send help from the sanctuary in Zion, verse 3, where the supplicant offers a gift, verse 4, but this text goes on to describe God as responding to the plea from a place in heaven, verse 7. This psalm is not sloppy or vague in the way that it imagines God. Rather, the psalmist, following a pattern of thought found elsewhere in ancient Near East, believes that God could be physically present in an earthly location and a heavenly one as well. If a deity can be present in many particular locations on earth at once, of course the deity can also be present in the heavenly body at the same time as well. So the Israelite notion of divine presence, it's not, you don't just have two choices. You don't have either God is in one singular location or omnipresent. Those are your only two options. Instead, there's a third possibility that God is multiply present in various forms and various bodies throughout the earth and heaven. Divine fluidity. Now, we're running short on time for this podcast, but I'm going to wrap this up. Get this book and uh, read this book. It's very interesting. There's a lot of uh, good information, a lot of examination of ancient Near East ideas. And here's what I would take away from this text, that those people who you know don't believe in a trinity per se or the people who believe that God has to be discreet, I don't think that's what the biblical evidence points to. I think it points more to divine fluidity. You could take these ancient fluidity texts as evidence for the Trinity, or you could assert something a little bit more radical, something like omnifluidity. God has the ability to be whoever and wherever he wants to be in whatever form he wants to be. Omnifluidity. Yeah, try that for a Calvinist. Say, hey, how about omnifluidity? Oh, no, God doesn't have any form. That's heresy, heresy, except for if you believe in Jesus Christ, and then we'll give you an exception, but otherwise heresy. Divine fluidity, God could be multiple actors at the same time with independent wills and emotions, but still remain the same God. That's interesting, right? Again, the book is The Bodies of God and the World of Ancient Israel by Benjamin Summer. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to God is Open questions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.